John chapter 6, but I'm going to start in the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, chapter 7. I just want to read you a couple of verses out of there, set the, set the tone, I think, for where, at least where Jesus is at this point in the gospel. Song of Solomon, speaking of her groom. This is the bride speaking of her groom. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded, budded and its blossoms have opened, and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. And there I will give you my love. That's pretty romantically intimate, you know? It's a... One of the many instances in the Song of Songs that might make you go, okay, blush a bit. But there's something charming. And the reason I would clamor, let's, let's go out where it's quiet and peaceful and, and rural and serene. Because there's something about going out into the country, being in the country, that is both charming and comforting, body, soul, and spirit. The country and, and the villages. By the way, the word village is a good word to know, a Hebrew word. The word is kafar. Actually, villages, plural, kafarim, but the singular is kafar. K F A R, if you're taking notes on that. Kafar, that's a village. Keep that in mind for a moment here and understand. And I begin here because Jesus grew up country, he grew up country. Jesus didn't grow up, and, and think about God's timing and God's placement. He did not grow up in vainglorious Rome. And he did not grow up in boy chasing the little foxes and, and trapping the little birds. And of course, you know, later he would say, Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But while Jesus didn't have a home to speak of or, or a place to call his own. He never purchased a house. It's been said Jesus was a homeless man. While he didn't have a home of his own, Jesus did have an HQ headquarters, if you will. Many of you know this. It's Capernaum. Capernaum itself, a village, Kafar Nahum. Kafar in the Hebrew, village, Nahum means comfort. So Capernaum, Capernaum, is the village of comfort. And it's a fitting name. If you've ever seen Capernaum, you can look at pictures. You can Google it and see pictures. Some of you have been there. But Capernaum is a great name for this tiny little fishing village that was right on the northwest shore of Yom Kinneret, the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus would headquarter there. Peter's mother-in-law lived there. Jesus would go there often, and then from there he would fan out to the little villages that dotted the lower Galilee, and, and on up to the upper Galilee he would go at times with his disciples. And it still amazes me, when you pause and think about it, we had a long discussion about it this morning, when you think about the fact that God chose them there, God chose to visit, to make his ministry about the little townships, Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazim, among others. That's where the ministry would take place, not in the big cities like Tiberias. The one exception is Jerusalem. 
And much of what takes place in the Gospel of John happens in Jerusalem, but much happens also in the Galilee among these little villages. And that's just when Jesus did. And none of us would choose the way that Jesus chose to come unless we just thought our message wasn't going to get anywhere. I mean, that's like saying, I'm going to show up and I'm going to go to Cedro and Concrete. Maybe I'll make it over to Anacortes. And from there, we're going to change the world. I mean, you think, well, that's kind of lame. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Village to village, person to person. And when it got overloaded with people, as in the feeding of the multitudes, the day before where we pick up begins, Jesus, he cut bait. He got out of there. He said, I'm not, this is not my deal. And yet the ministry of Jesus has absolutely changed the entire face of the planet. So we pick up where we left off with this Kafarnahum, village of comfort, in the back of our minds, verse 22, it tells us the next day. So remember, the day before was the day of the feeding of the multitude, the, the 5,000 men, 10, 15, 20,000 people perhaps. And then that night was the storm on the Sea of Galilee. His disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. How did Jesus get out of here. They're looking for him. They're trying to find him. He's not in the region of Gadara. He's not there in Tiberias. Where'd he go? We saw the disciples leave, not Jesus. They didn't know. He just walked straight across the sea. Verse 23, there came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And I really like that. They came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They came to Capernaum, the village of comfort, seeking Jesus. And so do we. We talked about this a bit on Sunday, but this life, this ministry life to which we've been called, if we're followers of Jesus, it gets hard sometimes and tough and wearisome, but it is not without comfort. We come to the village of comfort seeking Jesus. That's kind of what we do when we gather, even on a Wednesday or a Sunday. We come seeking Jesus. We come for the comfort that only comes from, his, from Him. For 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5 says, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So the people come to Capernaum seeking Jesus and in verse 25, it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus said to them, verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves. Father God has set his seal. They came seeking Jesus and immediately he tags their motivation for why they're seeking him in the first place. He tags them right at the source of their seeking, which is the flesh. And it's been the devil's deceit ever since the garden when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, Genesis 3, 6, that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make her wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And Jesus says, you've come because you want more food. You got a free lunch yesterday. You're looking for another free lunch today. You'll want to feed the flesh. And he says, don't do that. Don't work for the food 
that perishes. Let me ask you all a question tonight before we go any further. What's your favorite food here on earth? That was a favorite question, you know, among kids growing up. You always want to know, what's your favorite food? What's your favorite food? Who really cares? I don't know. But we all would ask that question. But let's make it a little more serious than just what's your favorite food to put on the table. What do you hunger for? What do you desire? What do you really want or long for? And what would you do to get it? How far would you go to get to the food flesh can get and immediately? Amazon.com, before the whole shipping crisis at least, could get it to you in a couple of days. It's funny because my kids are freaking out when it takes a week. I remember sending off for things off a cereal box and waiting six months. In fact, you had to wait so long as a kid, you completely forgot about it until it showed up in the mail. You're like, oh, yeah, that's right. They have no idea. Dad, it's been like 24 hours. I'm like, yeah, hang on, hold fast. Man, the thing about getting it immediately is by tomorrow, most of what we want is moldy bread. Most of what we desire has already gone bad. What Jesus offers, though ancient, is as fresh as warm bread from the oven. It is always ready and good. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. So interesting, Isaiah prophesies, the Lord speaking, come get bread and wine and milk and water. Come get that which is true food, that which is good food. Jesus has already met with a Samaritan woman and told her, I've got water that will keep you refreshed forever. And now he's about to launch into this with the people to talk about the other aspect, that, that food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Note that. He will give it to you. You don't make it. You don't bake it. You don't mash it, mix it, put it in a bowl, stick it in the oven. You don't do that. The Son of Man will give it to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. This bread is FDA approved. Father's divine approval. This is God given, God sealed. By the way, what was the seal of approval? Jesus says, I I I'll give you this bread and it's coming from me, from the one on whom the Father has set his seal. You know what the seal is? The Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel. And for this, John the Baptist testified saying, I've seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself, John says, have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Jesus has the seal of approval. And by the way, then when you are saved, he puts the seal on you. Same seal. We are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of God the seal of our inheritance, the seal of our salvation, sealed by the Spirit, the Father's approval. 
Stop for just a second and let that sink in. Some of you need to hear that right there. You have your father's approval. Some have tried all their lives to get the approval of a parent, a mother or a father, and never felt like they got it. Listen to me. In Jesus, you have the father's approval. You are FDA approved. The father's divine approval is upon you by the seal of his spirit in the same way that God had set his seal of approval on Jesus. Verse 28. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Did they not hear what he just said? Verse 27 again. I want to make sure nobody misses this. Don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And they say, how do we work it? What must we do to work the works of God, he says, or they say. And Jesus answers and said to them, this is the work of God. By the way, highlight this, underline it, circle it, put little stars around it. You need to come back to this verse again and again and again because at some point you're going to forget about it. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And it is one of the hardest things Jesus ever taught. This is it. Here we go. Ready? Jot it down. Memorize this. Understand this. This sent. Hardest, one of the hardest things that Jesus ever taught, not because it's hard to do, but it's hard to accept. And even in reading it, I'll tell you, I heard it a different way this week than I've ever heard it before. And I've read this verse, I don't know, 100,000 times. And this week it was like, duh, I got it. I, I understood. I, I see what he's saying. How do we work the works, they ask. First of all, note this. It's the question of religion. That's what religion asks. The Muslim answers, keep the pillars. That's what you must do. The Hindu says, go to temple, wear the underwear, stay on mission. Christians even in churches will say, get involved in ministry, plug in, connect, be part of the group, do your part. What must I do to work the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And the Jews, of course, would say, keep the law. How must I please God? What must I do? Keep the law, all 613. And if you're a good Jew, keep all the rabbinical laws as well. All of the additions and the add-ons. Got to keep it all. By the way, do you realize it is impossible to keep the law today? More so even than it was in the days before the temple fell. Because there is no temple. So there is no atonement. There is no temporary fellowship, which, by the way, was a blast. It was so good to meet so many people, and, and it was a really neat afternoon. But one of the questions that was thrown out, which really caught my attention, was, is Torah applicable for today? I thought that was interesting because we've just finished going through Torah, first five books. Is Torah applicable for today? And I had to catch myself because I was about to say no, but then I thought, well, no, wait a minute. Applicable? Yes. Is Torah applicable? Absolutely. There's so much that we have already and can apply to our lives and the way that we live and pursuing righteousness. So yes, Torah is applicable. Helpful? Absolutely. Required? Impossible. You just can't keep it. 
And I believe on Sunday I quoted this, Romans 5, verse 20, the law came in so the transgression would increase. But where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness, not yours, not mine, but his, through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God gave the law for one very simple reason, to reveal our deep, deep need for grace through Jesus Christ. That's why the law was given. That's why religion is around us in the world today. It is not to grab hold of to see if we might make ourselves better. It's there to show us we can't be good enough. What must I do to work the works? Romans 9 and Colossians 2, these two passages, Paul says, what shall we say then? That, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Jesus is that stone. Jesus is the work of grace. And to try to work any religious works will cause a person to stumble over Jesus and miss him completely. How, what must I do to work the works of God? This is the work of God, to believe in him whom he has sent. Yeah, we've heard you, Rick. I don't think you have yet. He also says, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? which all refer to things destined to perish with use, I would add, like bad bread, in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Why? Because... They all speak to our pride. I've had a good week following Jesus this week. Yeah, I did everything by the book, and I'm feeling pretty good about me. Well, you're already losing right there because you are sinking into pride. And religion does that. All religion does that. You can pick any one, and you can throw Christianity into the mix if it's taken as a religion, which it never should be. But throw it into the mix. Are there things that I'm doing? Because if I do those, man, maybe, maybe then I'll be approved by the Father. Do you remember what we just said a minute ago? You're already approved through faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, but what must I do? It's always self-glorifying. Following Jesus, that just glorifies Jesus, which is what we're called to do. By the way, speaking of that seal of the Spirit that Jesus has that he gives to you and to me as well, John 16, 14 says the Holy Spirit will glorify, Jesus says, he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Okay, so, so back to John 6, 29. It is the most wonderful thing that Jesus ever said, in my opinion. His answer to how do we work the works, listen just one more time. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
please tell me you heard this. Faith is the work of God. I've spent so many years hanging on the last half of that verse. See, Jesus starts the whole sentence by saying, this is the work of God. It's his work. Even your faith, even my faith, it's not my work. Now, you've got to stay with me through this teaching tonight because you might walk out of here going, oh, then I don't, have, I don't have to do nothing. And my answer to that would be, yes, you're right, you don't. Well, then how do I be a Christian? Well, you start realizing you don't do anything. Stay with me on this because it's, it's just so freeing, this whole deal. Note that this is the work of God that you believe. Your faith is from him. I'll prove it to you in a minute, but your faith, your ability to even believe in Jesus has been given to you. You can't even claim that. Well, the people still don't get it. Verse 30, they said to him, what then do you do <laughs> for a sign? They're still looking for some work somewhere. What do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Hadn't they just had a full meal deal the day before? So what are they really asking here? Now, now think about this. I believe they're implying something here. It's not that they didn't see the miracle. It's not that they didn't accept that that glorious bread and fish feeding of Jesus the day before to 15, 20, why they've come back to Jesus, because he fed them all. So they know this, and now they're saying, what sign do you give? Well, either they're complete morons, and I don't think they were, but you know, how do you say what sign do you give when he just gave such an awesome sign before? But they compare it to Moses. Here's the deal. Jesus only fed them once. Moses fed them every, well, Moses didn't, but this is how they saw it. Every morning and the day after that, we'll be back to see. What sign do you have to show us? Now, here's the problem with that kind of mentality. You Bible students will recall this. The daily manna itself actually became a source of grumbling. Numbers 21, verse 5, the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable bread. He was feeding them every day, and it became for them a sense, a source of loathing. So, they've forgotten about their own history. They're looking at Jesus and going, hey, great, you did this great thing yesterday. What are you going to do today? And how are you going to prove that you really are Messiah? If you can't do what Moses did, I mean, you're 40 years every single day. Come on. Well, continuing, Jesus says in verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread of heaven. This bread. Now, before we go on, listen, Jewish ears would have heard something there because Jesus just shifted the narrative slightly. It's very subtle, but slightly. He shifted the narrative from manna, which was miraculous when it happened for Israel, and it was miraculous the day before when Jesus expanded the bread to feed everybody. But now Jesus has just changed gears slightly, and he's gone to a bread that is far greater than manna. He says the bread of God. The bread of God. 
Leviticus 21, verse 6, they shall be holy to their God and shall not profane the name of their God, for they present the offerings of fire to the Lord, the food of their God. So they shall be holy. You shall consecrate him there, the high priest, for he offers the food of your God, and he shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctifies you, are holy. The food of their God, the word food in Hebrew is lechem. What's the bread of God? It's the sacrifice. It's the sacrifice. It's not even the bread of the presence. Now, the bread of the presence, those 12 loaves stacked up on the table of showbread in the tabernacle, the bread of the presence was a, a constant reminder, a pointer to Jesus, who himself is the bread of heaven. But Jesus, in using this phrase, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God is what? Sacrifice which is why it has to be Jesus. The bread of God that you're going to offer us? Oh, cool, this is even better than manna. And so they shout out, always give us this bread. And Jesus turns and hits them with an awesome truth. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And Jesus is about to now throw out three major league statements of faith. I'm going to call them three pitches. Okay, so we're going to have a first, second, and third pitch here. And Jesus is going to throw them out like pitches on a diamond. He's going to throw these out, and they're going to strike at each one until they strike out. Three major things, and the first pitch is this. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am. It's that Greek phrase, ego me. It's the Hebrew phrase, Yahweh. I am the bread of life, he said. And as I've told you, this is the first of the seven I am statements. So Jesus is now beginning to share these, beginning to state these. The first I am statement, I am the bread of life here in 635. In chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. Chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And finally, chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. And in each one of these seven statements, I am the bread of life. Now, I mentioned on Sunday something else. There are three other times, three unique I ams that truly hit this right out of the park. Three I am's of Jesus, not in I am statement form like the seven, but three different times where he'll say, ego e me, and it is profound and powerful. And the first you've already heard on the waves of Yom Kinneret, of the Sea of Galilee, as he walked across the water to them, and the boat's about to capsize, and they see him, and they're terrified. And what does he say? In chapter 8, verse 58, after uh, an increasingly intense argument with the Pharisees, Jesus blows them out of the water by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, ego e me, I am. And then the third time, John 18, verse 4, equally powerful to the first two, on the waves of the sea, in argument with the Pharisees, but finally in Gethsemane. And I love this. Jesus, John 18, verse 4, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, 
Jesus the Nazarene, and he said to them, I am. Now, you might say, well, yeah, he just said, oh, I am. Listen, Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them, and when he said to them, I am, ego eimi, Yahweh, they drew back and fell to the ground. These are the down. When Jesus said, not, I'm Jesus. Oh, yeah, that's, that's me. He says, I am, and boom, they hit the ground because there is a spiritual truth here. There is a profound reality. When Jesus says, I am, God is speaking. And he says it in the seven I am statements, and he says it on the Sea of Galilee. He says it to the Pharisees. He says it in the Garden of Gethsemane, I am. But we begin the statements tonight with this, I am the bread of life. Great place to start because in every single culture, bread is the staple food. Bread is the sustenance of life, the very substance. In fact, Paul says in Colossians 2.17, the substance belongs to Christ. If there's any substance to anything, Jesus is the substance. So he's the bread of life, the bread of substance. Bread, we would not exist. According to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, without Jesus, we would not exist. We wouldn't even be alive. Much less looking down, you know, the, the portal into eternity. I am the bread of life, he says. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And he's talking about people now. Listen to that again. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up in the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him, will repeat this phrase six times in the Gospel of John, six times the last day is the day which dawns the rapture of the church. It's the last day of the church age, the last day of the age of grace. Matthew 24, 40, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Luke adds, Luke 17, 34, I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left which is somewhat of a conundrum because in Matthew he says it's a day and in Luke he says it's at night. Well, of course it is because when it's day here, it's night in Israel. And when it's night in Israel, it's day here. So he's covering both bases. There's going to be a rapturous moment. For some, it's going to be at night. And one will be taken right out of the bed and the other one will get a good night's sleep because all the snoring stopped. <laughs> but wake up. What's going on? How many of you have seen the, uh, the Avengers movie Endgame or, or Infinity War, the last two of the Avengers things? That moment in, in the movie where literally half of all humanity disappears. And I'm watching, will not know what to do with itself. This is a biblical reality. And, and already, it's not the movie makers, it's the devil is trying to come up with good excuses for what's really going on. There's going to be some moron who on the day of the rapture of the church goes, it's Thanos, who's the bad guy in the Avengers series. 
Yeah, but, but that day is going to dawn. The last day, the last day is coming. And Jesus says, come to me, I'll raise you up on the last day. The rapture of the church, the first resurrection as the Bible calls it. The last day of the church age. And it is the day of, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, the last day. The last day of the church age. By the way, do you know where he's teaching these things? As he's talking to them, they've come to find him in Capernaum. We know exactly where he was as he's going through this whole I am the bread of life teaching. If you look down at verse 59, just skip ahead and look at this. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. He's in the synagogue. He says, in the synagogue, I came down from heaven. <laughs> he says, in the synagogue, and those who come to me, I will raise up to heaven. And the people are hearing Jesus claim to be God, because only God comes from and goes to heaven. Only God can do this. Really, anyone who would have it. And there's only one caveat to all of this, and this is it. You got to want him. You got to want him. You can't work the works. You can't do the righteousness. You can't make yourself good enough. You just got to want Jesus. I remember my dad, when I was a kid, coached my basketball team a couple of years, one year to championship. I tell you, we were good. And as he coached us little elementary kids running around the court, I remember him saying this to me one time after practice. And it stuck with me all the way through high school. Rick, you got to want the ball. Got to want the ball. What do you mean, Dad? Hey, the kid out there on the court who wants the ball is the one who's going to win. The kid who wants the ball, who goes for it, who's not afraid of what's going on all around him, you got to want the ball. And that just stuck with me. Listen, you got to want Jesus. Not bellies full, stuffed full of free sandwiches. Not, not a, a body made muscular by all the hard work that you're doing but a heart full of Jesus. you got to want Jesus. If you want Jesus, he's going to fill your heart with faith. He's going to feed you with the truth. He's going to raise you up to life on the last day to be with him forever. And so we shall always be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Therefore, verse 18, comfort one another with these words. There is no more comforting reality than the work of God in me is to give me faith. Yes, Lord. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But the first pitch crosses the plate and is followed by a swing and a miss, verse 41. Therefore the Jews were, note this, grieving. is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. Now, before he says anything else, strike one, they grumble. Strike one, they grumble. Psalm 106.24 says, they despised the pleasant land and did not believe in his word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. Do not grumble, Paul says, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Jude 16. These were the grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly. The problem with grumbling is it edges out faith. The more I grumble, the harder it, the harder it is to trust God because I'm grumbling against him. I'm grumbling about the very things that he's doing that I may not understand. I might not get it. But grumbling edzo. Don't gongizo. Don't gongizo. It means to murmur or complain in low tones of discontent. Oh, I would never say it into the mic to the whole fellowship on a Sunday morning. But as I'm walking out to my car, did you see what he did? Low tones of murmuring, it's what the people did. It's what they're doing right now. They're grumbling. This is Jesus. This is Joseph and Mary's son. I watched him grow up. This, he's a country boy. What, what's he saying here? Now, to be fair, you might cut them a little slack and wonder, how can they not grumble? Now, put yourself there. You grew up in Oak Harbor. You knew someone all the way through elementary school, middle school, high school, and all of a sudden this person comes back and claims to be Messiah? Claims to have come from heaven when you saw him grow up next door? Come on. We know your parents. We know you, Jesus. Jesus grew up country, just right down the way. And the problem is that they needed help putting it together. You could say they needed help picking up the pieces, the pieces of bread that had been scattered all the way from Bethlehem, house of bread where he was born, all the way to the fish and bread of the day before. God had been dropping breadcrumbs for a long time. In fact, you could go way back to the prophets and see all the breadcrumbs that God has been dropping across all the ages, leading right up to Jesus, humble among yourselves. Again, because he knows grumbling kills faith. And you Calvinists love that verse. You Arminianists say, hold on a second, that's uncomfortable. You may not even know that you are an Arminianist. If you're not a Calvinist, you're probably an Arminianist. And one of the big issues between the two camps in, in theology across the, across the centuries, or at least since, since the, the times of Calvin and the Reformation, the argument is, is everything predetermined or is it all free will? Now, we've been over this before, but let me just make it really clear. Yes. <laughs> it is all predetermined and you have free will. <laughs> That's impossible, Rick. Listen, Jesus uses the word draws here. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The word draws is helkuo. And it means to pull with an inward force. God gets hold, to pull with an inward force. You could say he gets hold of your heart and starts to pull you. There's a drawing effect that Jesus describes here of God getting into the heart and he teaches you and he begins to tug at you. And you could call the word of God the pulling of God. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. He's still tugging at the heart of Israel today. He's going to have to tug a little harder, but he's going to get him. 
John 12, 32, Jesus will say, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw, same word, draw. I'm going to tug at the hearts of all men. And as people look at Jesus on the cross, that does something to you. I really wonder back at the, the first screening of Mel Gibson's The Passion, I wonder how many non-Christians, non-believers went and saw it just to go see a movie or were, you know, Jesus lifted up. Was there a, a drawing, a tugging? Now, I believe God tugs at the hearts of all people. His spirit searches throughout the earth for anyone who wants to know him, who, who, who is asking the question, why am I here? And God uses whatever he needs to. Have you ever felt that tug on your heart? Maybe you didn't even know why, but you're like, I had to find out who Jesus is. I need to know something about this. Or maybe you had a friend who was a, a follower of Jesus and very passionate, and every time you were around them, you were just going, I don't understand this. And there was a tug. Sometimes the tug is uncomfortable. You ever read uh, Prince Caspian in the Chronicle of Narnia, Narnia series? I love how it starts. You've got the four Pavinci children, uh, Peter, uh, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and they're sitting on a platform in a train station, and they start to feel tugged. They're, they're just sitting there. It's like, ow, one of them says. What's going on? Did you pull me? No, I didn't pull you. What? And they all start going, ow, oh. And next thing they know, whoosh, they're off of the platform, and they're in Narnia. And they put a stop to it right there. Others, the tug is off and on for years, but it's, it's this constant thing. It's like, I've got to find out about this. And you put it off, and you put it off, but then it gets you. That tug, that draw. Jesus said, Jesus, not Pastor Rick, not John Calvin, not Arminius. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, tugs him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 45, he says, it's written in the prophets. And he quotes Isaiah 54, 13. And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He's seen the Father on our eternal life. That's it right there. Verse 47 again, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. It doesn't get any more simple than that. As Jesus is explaining what, what's going on here, he had a way of simplifying the most profound truth. You know, what, what, what pastors across the ages and rabbis and teachers have done is we take the idea of salvation and eternal life and we make it into, you know, 24 lesson series. And Jesus says, everyone who believes has, has eternal life. Done. That simple. That clear. And so the best teaching that you're ever going to get is teaching that's straight from Jesus. Straight from God. Everyone teaching his spirit his seal, as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in him. It's God in your life teaching you. It's not me. It's Jesus. It's the Spirit of God who's doing something in you. No human being could do this. No human being could sit up here and, and teach the Bible and get it into your heart. You can hear funny Greek words, you know, and you can hear ideas and concepts tossed at me. The stuff that gets in, the stuff that tugs at your heart, that's the Holy Spirit of the living God. And that is the dynamic. That's, this is how the whole thing works.
Again, this is what Jesus, whole thing is what Jesus calls the work of God. It's not the work of a pastor. It's not the work of your own hands. It is the work of God in your life. And by the way, if you're sitting here going, okay, okay, so it's God at work, but I'm lacking faith. I'm struggling with faith. Then don't grumble. Ask him for it. I'm having a hard time believing. Ask him. One of the best prayers anybody can pray is, God, I, if you're there, would you, would you show me? Jesus, if this is real, and I love that prayer because it's not something you have to ask a pastor about, fearing that he's going to come after you and be calling you every day for two weeks. It's not something you have to share with your Christian friend. Hey, I'm just, I'm starting to think maybe this Jesus, there's something to this. Really? And they're on you. No, no. All you have to do is ask Jesus yourself in the quiet of your own room at home. Jesus, if you're real, if this is true, would you show me? I guarantee he will. I promise you he will. He'll tug at you. He'll get you. Verse 48, he says again, he repeats it, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread. 24 hours. Yeah, you got it one morning. It was bad the next. I mean, it was, if they tried to save it, and they did for the next day, they opened up the pot of the manna that they set aside for the next day, and it was maggot meal. Crawly, nasty, little gooey thing. Exodus 16, 20, some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. Anna Marie cooked something tonight. I don't even know what it was. She would whop me across the head if she heard me even mentioning this. But the only word I can come up with, I walked into the house, and the word is pungent. It was some Ghanaian thing. You know, and the whole house, I was just like, what is that? Which is all, already an offense to her. Well, I'm cooking something. You just leave me alone. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going in my room because I can't smell that. Nasty, pungent stuff. Can you imagine that morning when they lifted the lid off the jar and the maggots were crawling and the smell just went, oh, okay. That's of the bread of life is eternal. Always good, always fresh, always nutritious, always tasty, always good. Verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Ah, oh, Jesus, you were doing so well. And you go here and note this, the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Second pitch. Pitch number one, I am the bread of life. Second pitch comes in a little faster this time. The bread of life, by the way, is my flesh. That this bread, that, that he was this bread, that he was come down from heaven, that he was the one who could bring eternal life, that his father would draw people to him through whom they could be saved. And his verbiage here is nothing short of sacrificial. I will give for the life of the world my flesh. So I've come here 
to do what you couldn't do. And I'm going to give myself up. And he's going that direction. Jesus could have said just as easily, I will die on this hill for this cause, your salvation. I give my life, my flesh. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, when he comes into the world, he says, Look, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And note this, at this point, even though he said, the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, he hadn't even said anything suggesting that they had to eat it. They made that. The two cannibals who are eating a clown, and the one says to the other one, did you taste something funny? Anyway, <laughs> I'll stop there. I've got so many cannibal jokes, it would get me in bad trouble with all of you, I'm sure. Jesus had not said anything about them eating his flesh. They're the first to say something. But you know what he does? All right. He tugs at the heart of their suggestion, and he's doing this to draw out faith, if there be any. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Oh, don't stop there, Jesus. He doesn't. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. <laughs> This is unbelievably strong. And I love that Jesus just doesn't hold back. Once again, once again, this isn't like gentle parable teaching, sneaky little ways of getting truths, you know, taking something known and laying a truth alongside it to try and teach them. This is just Jesus being blatant and bold and brave with his language. He says all of this about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and in that moment in the synagogue in Capernaum, I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop, at least for a couple of seconds. People shocked at this. Third pitch. It's not just, I am the bread of life. It's not just the bread of life is my flesh. It's you must eat my flesh. He really pushes this point. You wouldn't see this, but in the Greek, in verse 52, they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And the word eat is phagion, which in the Greek means to eat or consume. It's the word you would use about let's eat dinner. Let's just go have our dinner, phagion. In verse 54, when Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, the word eats in verse 54 is a different word. It's trogon, which means to gnaw, crunch, or munch on. As if Jesus goes from he who has dinner on my flesh to he who's gnawing on, chewing on, and munching on my flesh. I mean, he gets very graphic in his description here. As if to say, <laughs> chew on this. Process this if you can. The only way, he says, to have life in yourselves, and he's continuing to talk about life eternal. For us, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's, you know, a little weird. For God, it's the point of life. You know, it's where seed meets egg. For him, that's... He is going for a much deeper reality and truth that I want your entire seed, Abraham, to have this blessing. Therefore, where else would you put the sign 
but circumcision. And here with the bread and the wine, those two substances, as Jesus talks about his flesh and talks about his blood, and we go, man, that's graphic. And Jesus goes, I'm trying to get me in you. I'm trying to get you to the point where you understand how serious I am about a deep, lasting, eternal, intimate relationship that is so close, it's as if you've consumed me yourself. And then I dwell in you, and I, I reside within you, and I become with you, part of you. And you know what? He's setting something up here. I'm absolutely convinced. Some, some would disagree with me. The Gospel of John is the only of the four Gospels that does not describe the institution of communion. We get John 13. We know they're in the upper room. We know Jesus washes their feet. We know that he gives a morsel to Judas. But communion as such, as described in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is not described in John except right here. And here we have what I believe is the most graphic description of communion that we have in the entire Bible. You've got, he's doing it in spirit and in truth. And he'll say that in just a second. He's doing it in spiritual, it's, I'm going to use physical, graphic physical language to speak a great spiritual reality to you. He is not describing transubstantiation. And if you have a Catholic background, you know what transubstantiation is. Maybe you do anyway. Let me just tell you this, and I mean this with all due respect, that transubstantiation is not biblically supportable. What is it, Rick? Transubstantiation is when you take the cracker into your mouth, it becomes the flesh of Jesus. As you swallow it down, he is being sacrificed all over. The book of Hebrews says more than once he was sacrificed once for all. One day. One, he's not sacrificed over and over. It was one sacrifice good enough for all at any point following and before. The, the bread becomes the flesh and the wine actually turns into blood going down your gullet. That's transubstantiation. That's Catholic doctrine and it didn't show up until a thousand years after Christ. Jesus is not talking flesh. He's talking spirit. And the reality is that communion, like, like baptism, is an implicit reality that is represented by an explicit action. The spiritual reality, when you go into the waters of baptism, it is not that water that saves you. And I know that because all you got to do is get up the next morning and take a shower and that water's completely gone. So what, do you have to get baptized again? Those who get baptized in Israel, the place that we do it, the water's brown. This is not clean. We shower off afterwards because it's brown, murky. It's the same water that Jesus was baptized in. It's not the water. It's the explicit action that reveals an implicit truth. I have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. I have been saved. Communion is the same way. It spiritually represents taking in Jesus, consuming Jesus, who we love. And as often as we do it, we, we proclaim his death until he comes, Paul writes. So it's a taking in of him, flesh and blood. But it's a spiritual reality that is simply represented by a physical action. But with the third pitch, the masses strike out. Verse 60. Verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. 
Therefore, many of his disciples, note that his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this. Remember, grumbling denies faith, removes faith. Conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And then he's saying these are spiritual realities that I am teaching you. And notice again, this is not in parable form. He is using the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the multitudes the day before. Yes, he's using that as a powerful parabolic picture, what I've called a life parable, and he's teaching from it. But man, he is speaking plain truth. He's speaking spiritual reality. But get this, reception requires trust. To be able to receive what he's taking you got to be able to trust him that what he's saying is legit and true. Following takes faith, which is why so many of his disciples, his followers here, were saying, uh-uh. The problem wasn't Jesus. The problem wasn't with what he was saying. The problem was they didn't have faith. They did not trust him. This was pushing them way too far. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, flesh and blood. What are you talking about? Eat your flesh. Paul says he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, spiritually comprehended, spiritually understood. And that's why Jesus, by the way, mentions his ascension. He uses this for them. He's saying, look, if you can't believe the bread come down from heaven, you're not going to believe even if you see him rise back up to heaven. <laughs> That's funny, the bread rising. Anyway, you're not going to believe that. Faith is never about evidence. It's about trust. It has to begin at a point of trust. You can have all the facts laid out in the world, lay them out before someone, and I've done this many times. Sit down with someone and just start laying out fact after fact after fact. Why is this legitimate? Why should I listen to this book? How is this? How do we know that this is true? And go right down the line talking about the, the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that we know were written thousands of year, years before he came. And he fulfilled every one. How is this possible? And, and you give them the statistics and you give them the numbers about how impossible that would be. And they walk away. But I gave them all the facts. Yeah, but there was no trust. And when there's not trust, there's no reception of the truth. Verse 64, Jesus says, after saying, I've spoken to you in words that are spirit and are life. So he, he qualifies the whole thing. I'm speaking spiritually here to you. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would Betray him, verse 65, and he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me, here we go again, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Jesus mentions the betrayal. Why? Because Judas is sitting right there. And Judas is part, this is still early in the ministry, but he's listening to the teaching. Judas is there. It's stunning to me. Judas saw all of this happen. If anyone had the evidence, Judas had the evidence. 
Judas was there when 15, 20,000 people were fed the day before. Judas was on the boat when Jesus came walking across the water and got into the boat with them, and immediately they were at the other shore. Judas saw the signs. He heard the teaching. He walked with Jesus Christ himself. But it was not granted to him to believe. It was not granted to him to believe. And I, I say it that way because that's what Jesus says. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So we're right back at, okay, so that's Calvinism, right? That is predetermined. God has granted to some and not to others, and that's just the way it is. So if, if someone's not saved, it because, it's because God has not granted it to them. Hold on there. Johnny Calvin, listen to me. Some would say, well, the granting sounds preset and predetermined. And people who buy the theology of predetermination like that because it's about the sovereignty of God, which I got to tell you, I can respect that. I don't agree with it, but I respect that, that the person who buys into everything is predetermined. What they're saying is God is sovereign. I believe in a sovereign God who has a by him, but that does not deny free will. Listen to me. Granted here is didomenon in the Greek, and it's literally given to or gifted. And so when Jesus says, no one can come to me unless it has been gifted him or her, given to them by the Father. So yes, I absolutely believe that the only way you can come to the Lord is to be given faith by the Lord. It sounds like determination, Rick, like someone doesn't even have a choice. Yes, except upon what, listen to me, upon what is faith granted? What is faith or, or this, this ability to believe, what, it, what is it given upon? And here's the key word, foreknowledge. Foreknowledge, which absolutely embraces the sovereignty of God those whom he foreknew, Romans 8, 29, he predestined. What does that mean, Paul? Well, let me read the whole verse. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be a firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he glorified. What a wonderful process. But it begins not with predestination, it begins with foreknowledge. Meaning what? Faith in Jesus is given to you by God. It's given to those sitting here tonight. He knows every single one of you. And he knew, if in fact you have made a faith decision for Jesus, he knew you would. And knowing, and I'm looking over here at Lisa, knowing that Lisa was going to believe, God said, all right, I'm predestining her to be conformed to the image of my son. I'm going to give her the faith that I know she's going to want. So he gives it, but she's part of the deal. She chooses. She wants him. She has the desire for him. And he knew that she would because he's sovereign, because he's God, because he knows everything and has already seen it all happen. Of course he knows. Yes, he knew that I was going to choose him. So he predestined me to be conformed to the image of his son. I love it because Calvin was right and so was Arminius. 
It's not two camps, it's just one. One true God who works all things. God doesn't force your choice. He knows your choice ahead of time. And because he knows it, he grants to you and grants to me the faith that we need to come to Jesus. That's just beautiful. It, it works perfectly. So if you're sitting here tonight, you're like, well, how do I, I know if I'm one of those that he's granted that faith to? Ask him for it. And he will already have known that you were going to. <laughs> it's a little overwhelming, but it's the reality. If you're sitting there going, well, I haven't chosen him, so am I one of those that he's denied? No. If you haven't chosen him, choose him. If you haven't chosen him, choose him. Choose him, or you can reject him. And some did. Verse 66, ironically. Chapter 6, verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. 666. Which the Bible tells us in Revelation 13 is just the number of a man. Don't get all hyped about it. The number of the Antichrist is the number of a man that never gets to completion, never gets to seven. And chapter 6, verse 66 describes that very mentality. Many of his disciples who would withdraw and not walk with him anymore. It's how, it's ironically tragic that that happens to be that verse. By the way, I was thinking during communion as, as Jake was sharing, how wonderful that Jesus was on the cross by his own choice for six hours. As if to put the final nail in the coffin of humanity's sin and our need for Jesus, he stayed on that cross six hours. Amazing. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This marvelous faith statement of Peter make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Peter is spot on. And it must have given Jesus just a twinkle in the eye. After all of this, and after watching not just the masses, but disciples depart, because this teaching was too much for them. They did not want to go that far with Jesus. And he's watching them leave in droves, and he looks at his own 12, and he says, do you want to go away too? There's the door. Now, if that doesn't tell you that God does not coerce or force anybody, I'm not sure what else will. They had the right, the freedom to walk away. Now, Jesus knew they wouldn't, but one. One he absolutely knew would. And while he had a twinkle in his eye from what Peter said, he would have probably had a tear in his eye for what he says next. Verse 70, Jesus answered them and said, did I myself not choose you, the 12? And one of you is a devil. One of you is a devil. And John tells us he meant Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. How does a man look into the face of Jesus? 
the healer of the lame, the feeder of the multitudes, the storm calmer and the wave walker, the God. Well, that didn't do Judas any good, did it? How can you be in that place? I want to make something really clear because it's going to be really important later in our study through John, Lord willing. Judas was not confused. Judas was not a misguided Jewish zealot hoping to force Jesus into taking his place as a, as a rebel king. And I've heard those sermons. People trying to justify Judas. And you can't justify Judas when you read the Gospel of John because Jesus himself calls him a devil at this point. What do you mean? Judas was bad to the bone. It's undeniably clear from early on, Judas was a bad dude. His heart was dark. Mark chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And the word born there isn't even born, it's conceived. It'd be good for that man if he had just never even been ganao, conceived. And by the way, Jesus wouldn't have said that if everybody was going to be saved eternally, universally. If salvation was just, we're all going to ultimately get there, Judas included, Jesus wouldn't have said that. But you need to know that about Judas, that he was dark from the beginning to the end. You need to know this about Judas to see the love of Christ by the end of this gospel. You need to understand how dark this heart was to see how bright the love of Jesus really is. Why does John end chapter 6 here with such a dark truth? Well, partially because that's what Jesus said. Also partially we will see that chapter 7 begins after these things. So there's a break here in the narrative. And John stops right here, but I'll tell you what this does to me, perhaps to you tonight. What we do is we end having now heard words of eternal life and death, that there is a choice to be made here. Back on the plains of Moab, it was Moses who said, Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in today. And again, Jesus said, the words I have spoken to you our spirit, and our life. So choose life, and the Father will draw you to Jesus. Father, we thank you for that eternal truth and for the things, Jesus, that you say here. I am amazed once again at how explicit you are, how literal, how there's, there's no dancing around. I mean, you just, you just tell it straight. And perhaps that's why the people had trouble believing it was just too honest. Lord Jesus, I pray to you, draw us always after you to believe you and to trust in you. Lord, erase grumbling from our vocabulary so that we would be a people who speak words of faith and encouragement and comfort. I pray in Jesus' name.